uh, primary concepts that are taught within the Gospel of John. What makes John's Gospel unique is uh, John himself and his style of writing, his approach to laying out the Gospel has a different slant, a different approach because he is um, communicating at a level that is to take us beyond information. Uh, Many times the Gospels, as we think about them, they give the stories of Jesus and what he did, and they give teachings and what he taught. John's Gospel is to take it a little bit further and get it to the heart. It's to present it in a way that if you dig a little bit and search a little bit and listen a little longer, it's going to take us to another place. And that's his purpose and intent, is that the good news touches the heart and changes people's lives. Uh, It's harder to get through the Gospel of John and not have to deal with what's inside of us. If you read the other Gospels, you may gather a lot of pieces of information. You may get teachings about what is right and what is wrong. You may hear the stories, but sometimes it's possible to hear it and become familiar with it and somewhat miss its intent to change and transform the heart. As you read John's Gospel, it gets to you. And it's the beauty of it, uh, not only that the others cannot do that, but it's the beauty of how God has, has used this Gospel to the point that most people who have been brought up in church and someone says, well, where do you start? What do they say? The Gospel of John. It's because it has its own unique uh, style and approach to that. But we realize as we journey on through life that if you take one small piece of the gospel and don't read it all, there's a chance that some things you can miss, some things you won't capture. It's, it's intended to be one gospel that comes to us and touches the heart and life. So we've been working our way through these things to try to understand what are these significant truths or these significant teachings that really give you the framework to build your life upon. Uh, two weeks ago, I was going to say last week, but last week I was at home and uh, most likely you were at home, and, and uh, we kind of got snowed in, but uh, we are grateful that we can be together again this morning. Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance that the gospel was intended to be a, a, a means of teaching us about Christ and teaching us about truth. And so it's important as followers of Jesus Christ that if uh, we we take a hold of the teachings of Christ and we hold them and we cherish them and we keep them, Jesus said, you'll know the truth and that truth will set you free. It's the core of what the gospel is. It's the good news that truth has been given to us. It's the good news that we can know what the truth is. It's the good news that the truth becomes this foundation stone in our lives that as we follow him, we are a people of the truth. We are a people that believe that what Jesus taught is what sets us free. John chapter 8, turn with me again to 31 and uh, 32. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Now to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and that truth will set you free. As we 
spent a significant time a couple weeks ago on the Sunday morning talking about the number of places throughout Scripture that, uh, that reinforce the same concept, that there is this uh, teaching, there is this truth that is given to us, and what allows us to grow and what allows us to uh, experience a clear understanding of what is right and wrong, what allows us to be changed is a constant, steady diet of truth. But that truth is so much more than information. It's the words that give life. And when Jesus spoke his words, he spoke them and gave them to us as spirit and life. Those words themselves are extremely powerful. They will nourish us and they will give us direction in life. Uh, they are the, the secret to a changed life is we live on these truths. Now, Jesus not only came in truth, but to notice if we go back to John chapter 1 and we look at verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14, we find that the gospel of John is unique in a sense that there is a strong emphasis upon this word called grace. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, Now the word, meaning Christ, became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Drop down to verse 16. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, in verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's take a minute and pray. Father, we are humbled by the reality that that truth not only has spoken into our lives, but it came with grace all around it. We realize the importance, the value of taking to heart your teachings and walking in a life of obedience and devotion to those teachings. Yet because of grace, we have hope. And because of grace, we can experience your life. Because of grace, we get second chances. Because of grace, we have a power that's not ours, but it's his. We thank you for that grace that has softened us and given us some kind of stability in life, some kind of security in life. We thank you for the grace that not only amazes us, but empowers us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me now as we, we look back in John chapter 8. The Gospel of John chapter 8. Now the word can be used uh, uh, as, as information. That The word grace as it's used throughout uh, the gospel is one form in which God or through Jesus Christ has given us grace. But the way that Jesus ministered to people... Uh, it was rather evident that he not only talked about the idea of grace, but he, he lived it, he communicated it. And uh, many of us that are familiar with the gospel stories and the accounts of others that surrounded Jesus, particularly the religious leaders, grace was not part of the vocabulary. They may not even know how to spell it. They certainly didn't know how to offer it. They didn't know how to share it. And you and I are well aware that as devoted as God has called us to be, without a cushion of grace, without a foundation of grace, 
without that presence of grace in our life, none of us could ever even come close to following all the teachings and the principles that Jesus gave. It's important to understand that just as Jesus came communicating a truth that can set people free, he offered a grace that allows you to live within the balance and the beauty of a holy God and a very unholy nature. You and I, in, in, uh, as we uh, are born and we continue to grow, we recognize that it doesn't take very long to realize that the real you will stand. Who you and I are, not only because of, of how we are created or born as descendants of Adam, who has eaten the forbidden fruit and has shared that in essence with each and every one of us, we have this tendency or this strong uh, depravity that consumes us, that controls us. It's because of grace that regardless of my past, I can have hope in a Savior who loves me in the future. And so that grace is what enables us to not only understand truths that penetrates the heart, but it allows us to stand with assurance that I'm okay, even though sin continues to work in my life. John chapter 8. And we begin with verse 1, and we'll read down through 11. Here's a story in which uh, this grace is clearly manifested, and it's demonstrated uh, among uh, the followers who have come to listen to Jesus. I believe, uh, are we putting these... Uh, scriptures up there? Okay, so if you'd like to follow along up on the screen, you're certainly welcome. Uh, in verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, in verse 1. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down. He started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing, still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. It's interesting that when we try to understand the background to all that is taking place, is most of us are well aware that probably one of Jesus' primary teaching topics was forgiveness. And he talked about this love of God that is greater than our sin. He talks about this grace of God that enables us to understand and respond to God. 
It's almost as if this grace, when it begins to soften your heart, Jesus becomes extremely irresistible. As you and I begin to be aware or uh, familiar with the concepts of grace, it has a way of breaking the hardest of us. It brings us to a place in which we want not only this grace, but we long to experience that grace day by day by day by day. And so as Jesus is communicating this this unlimited supply of forgiveness and this amazing grace that is constantly being demonstrated and given out, you have the religious people who believed in all honesty that they were perfect, they were pure, they were innocent, they were above these things. And so you could imagine it really, really irritated them. Who does this Jesus guy think he is that he can just say you're forgiven? Who does this Jesus guy think he is that he can pretend or, or, or present himself as if he has the authority to speak you're forgiven? Who is this Jesus guy that can talk about a love as if it's for everybody? Who is this Jesus guy that comes across in a way and he ministers to people who are clearly sinners. To the, everything that they believed in, everything they cherished, that he was to make sure people stayed in a nice little box and behaved exactly the way they're supposed to. They taught in a way that condemned a lot more than ever gave hope to other people. And I trust that we'd recognize that regardless of where we've been in our past, that we realize that we are fully capable of identifying with this woman, and we're certainly fully capable of identifying with the Pharisees. And throughout the journey of cherishing the teachings of Christ, there's moments when you and I are going to really feel good about ourselves. And there's other times in the journey of our faith that we're going to feel like the stone is about to come on my head. I trust that we'd realize the beauty of this grace, though it's very difficult to explain this favor that God pours out. One thing you and I must recognize is our standing before God began because of grace, and on Judgment Day, it's not going to change. You and I are embraced, we're covered, we're surrounded by this grace. What Jesus wants to teach us is what it amazed you about it in the beginning. I trust we'd humbly become aware that that's what needs to amaze us all the way through. And as you and I search through this journey of life, as we become followers of Christ, we do not minimize the importance of holding firmly to the teachings of Jesus Christ. But what really gives you the grip is grace. What gives you insurance to continue to press on what gives you the hope that one day we might live a little bit more in the dimension of maturity is because this grace keeps getting to your heart. Well, sometimes we would struggle with this. No doubt you've run into people and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that you Christians, meaning us who believe and hold to the teachings of Jesus, you guys tell me that a person literally could live however they want, do unthinkable things all the way through their life, and in that final hour, that moment of their life, in their last breath, they say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And 
that person gets to go to heaven. No doubts. We may not be Pharisees, but there's still an element that hangs within our mind and heart that says, it can't be that good. But my proposal is not simply to give us an excuse to live it up and then wait till the last second and throw in an I do. That would be foolish because grace is something you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, you can't control it, you can't package it. All you and I can do is take it when it overwhelms us. So here we are as a people that are overwhelmed in seasons of life. There's sometimes that grace doesn't really break the hardness of our heart. And other days, the grace just softens us so pliable. The challenge we have is when he speaks, that's when we listen. And when we listen, that's the moment to once again receive this abundant, amazing grace. Now, what's interesting is the woman isn't even the issue in this story. Religious leaders, they worked long and hard to try to trap this Jesus guy. He keeps talking about love and forgiveness and, and mercy. He keeps talking about these things, and they're trying to figure out, now how do you nail him to the wall? So they conveniently grabbed somebody that probably had a reputation in town. They grabbed one that somehow they had to figure out the time to catch her at the same time Jesus is teaching. So you have this battle going on between the new teacher in town, meaning Jesus, and the ones who always are known as the teachers of the law. You got the religious leaders who believe that their job is to teach it right, and Jesus shows up with a different twist. So the showdown began, no doubt, as we uh, consider this, that it's an awful situation to simply grab someone else to prove a point and grab someone else and publicly humiliate them. Obviously, she was most likely devastated not only in the reality of, of, uh, of her own life, but she's obviously humiliated to be drugged right in front of them with the assurance or the conviction or the belief that I guess this is it. I'm caught. I'm condemned. I'm guilty. But she simply uses a pawn to the religious ideas. I trust that we'd recognize there may have been times that we have somehow built ourselves on some kind of a platform because we're, we're in good mode. We're feeling pretty good with the things of God. We're, we're trying to follow God. We're trying to do what God wants us to do. And somehow these crazy thoughts, the same thought that got put in the religious leaders can rest in us, that we somehow think that we're better than someone else. And this story is intended to bring down the playing field on level ground because the grace that saved you is the grace that keeps you. It's the grace that you and I will hold on to on Judgment Day. We're not going to talk our way through the pearly gates saying, God, I've really been good. We will probably break and say, I'm a sinner. But because of his grace and because of his love and because of his faithfulness, he will welcome us into his presence. It's the foundation of grace that continually transforms the life. It shapes and changes the way we look at Scripture. It shapes and changes the way we interpret life. It shapes and changes what keeps us going, what motivates us, what presses us on, is we know we are a people, that the grace of God has found me. For there was a time when we were blind, but now we see. And uh, God has opened our eyes to begin to respond to this. So we have this, this showdown of the religious leaders and combating uh, Jesus and trying to trap him and trying to set him up. 
And it's kind of ironic as we think about this drama to unfold. And what does Jesus do? We notice here when we look in uh, John chapter 8, um, verse 6. They were using this question as a trap. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing uh, Jesus. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. He doesn't say anything. He simply bends down and he writes on the ground. And the scriptures make it clear. He writes with his finger. Now, as the religious leaders were well aware, and the majority of people fully understood that thou shalt not commit adultery, is one of the big ten. It's one of those that it's kind of hard to weasel your way through that one. You either did or you didn't. You're either involved or you're not involved. And, and as, as Jesus writes on the ground, we, we need to humbly consider Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. We'll hold on to John and come back, but look at Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. Now, I forgot to mention when we look at John, they, they say that in the law, Moses commanded us. Did you get that phrase back in John chapter 18? We, we recognize that the religious leaders, ironically, when we talk about being disciples and followers of Jesus, ironically, the religious leaders claim to be disciples of who? Does anybody know? Moses. They were disciples. They were students of the law. They submitted to the teachings of Moses. And so somehow they connected the laws with the Moses guy who met God on the mountain and received the laws, but who gave Moses the laws? God did. But they were using that. Moses, he's bigger than you, Jesus. He'd been around a lot longer than you, Jesus. Their misunderstanding of the identity of Christ was, according to the law, it's Moses commanded us. Exodus 31, verse 18. When the Lord had finished speaking to Moses, notice he's on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. He gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. I don't know what that would be like to kind of witness from a distance God writing these laws. But Jesus has now identified himself as the one writing. He says, I'm well aware that this is a big ten. I am well aware that the law has principles to follow and reinforce. I am well aware that this woman has committed adultery. Jesus identifies himself with the one whose finger wrote the law, though probably the religious leaders did not see the connection because they did not want to see the connection. They did not understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. They simply are saying, you know, I, we got you now because you're quiet. You're just doodling on the ground. You're coming up with time. You're stalling because you know that if you let this woman free, 
you are minimizing the importance of God's law. And if you uh, uh, do not let her free, then you must kill her. You must cause her to die the penalty of this particular law. The religious leaders, they could not see it, not only because they did not want to, but that's the beauty of John's gospel is when our heart is in the right place, truth begins to do its work. When our heart is in the wrong place, the most obvious you and I will miss. And that's the intent of the gospel. The gospel is intended to keep us from knowing all the right answers and pretending to be the right people. I trust that as we look at the gospel, we realize that through a response to the person of Jesus Christ, by responding to him as for who he is, we begin to gather the insight and the beauty of all that's taking place. And so Jesus never says a word to defend the woman, nor does he attempt to justify his own actions. Yet Jesus then says, if anyone is without sin, let him be the first to throw stone. His words were basically, okay, the law says she is to be stoned. Who here is innocent? I'm not sure exactly what Jesus wrote on the ground, but I think it was rather clear whether they just discovered by what he said or somehow by what he seemed to write is somehow the scriptures make it clear that when you break one law, you are called a lawbreaker. When you sin in one area, you're the same as all sinners. And so it's important to know that the beauty of the gospel, the grace of God, brings us all to a place where we are guilty before we're healed. We are brought to a place in which there is no way to throw stones. He brings us to a place where each and every one of us are well aware that the punishment ought to fall upon all of us. And yet because of the goodness and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ, that there is hope. And you could imagine the multitudes are hanging on to the, the moment. Now, you've got to realize in the beginning of chapter 8, it says the place is packed. It's the temple grounds. It's the outer courts of the temple. And Jesus is speaking about this love, this mercy, and grace. And the people have come, all kinds of people packed. They're probably holding on to, can Jesus pull this one off? As people anticipated, what will he say? Will this woman truly be stoned? It makes sense that the oldest, then on down to the youngest, went away one at a time because they realized, Jesus, we really don't like you. We really don't want this grace. But since you put it that way, I think it's actually a good thing. Can you imagine being in the crowd and well aware? Now, the ironic thing about the story is, where is the man? There's a good chance that in the presence of Christ, somebody was squirming. Somebody was well aware, and most likely all the religious people knew who it was, and they were all part of it. In other words, they all had their hands involved most likely in this. And so they began to realize, I think it's time to get out of there. And when the first guy left, it made it easier for the second guy to left. And they started going out pretty darn fast because they realized this Jesus must know something that somebody either leaked the information 
for you. That's his particular style. See, grace knows how to search us and to break us down to the point where we know that he knows. But somehow, because of grace, I think I need to keep silent. I think I need to allow my heart to break for a moment. I think I need to allow myself to experience that though I'm guilty, somehow my hope is that there's a freedom offered. Well, not only does Jesus inscribe on the ground or write with his finger uh, with the significance of God, but the story goes on, as we mentioned Uh, We think in terms of the law is given by Moses. In in other words, the teachers of the law, the disciples of Moses, the religious leaders identified that their pattern is we're like a Moses. We are teachers. We are preservers of truth. Now, if we go back to uh, uh, Exodus 32, the story continues to unfold. We were at the end of 31, and we realized that, that Moses has given these finished products, the Ten Commandments, he has them. They're holy. They're sacred. He's carrying them. He's, and God gives them to him. And it's clear that they were inscribed by the finger of God. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 32 now. And we'll read down through several scriptures going down uh, through 19 of chapter 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses was a long time in coming down from the mountain. Now, it's interesting. I don't know how long it takes God to do handwriting. I don't know how long it takes God to do his inscribing. But 40 days, Moses is on the mountain alone with God. So you could only imagine that after a period of time, Moses is going to to have this encounter with God, and the people are down there wondering, okay, how long does it take for an encounter with God? And that's the the, the human sinful side of us, as we kind of believe that whatever God does, He does it instantly, He does it quick. And and so this this longing period, what is going on down below? In verse 1, they gathered around Aaron. Now he is the high priest. Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, Take off your gold earrings and your, that your wives, your sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with the tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early. They sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. Verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, They have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Verse 9, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I might destroy them. Then I will make you into 
a great nation. But Moses, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. He said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring his people the disaster he had threatened. Jesus says, Moses, the one you claim to be disciples of, he's not throwing stones. He stood boldly in the presence of Almighty God, knowing his anger is hot. And later on you'll find, he says, if they are not redeemed, you blot my name out. The story of redemption is all through the Bible. And the story of this love, this sacrificing love, ought to come through those who are disciples of Moses. In essence, Jesus often would make claims such as that if you did not listen to Moses, you won't listen to me. Jesus has now elevated himself by writing on the ground which they did not catch. He's elevated himself above Moses, who they claim to have been the big man that gave us the Big Ten. He gave us these laws. And Jesus reminds them, Moses wasn't interested in killing anybody. He was boldly standing in there. And now we read as we look in verse 30 and 32 of the same chapter. The next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. Again, we begin to see that in the very law that condemns is the same law which offers atonement. It offers a sacrifice of substitution. And we recognize that through all the Passover story in the Old Testament, that the same law that has provided the firmness, there is a law that always offers grace. And this is the message or the gospel, the good news, that has come through Jesus Christ. Verse 31, now Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. What time is it? Okay, it says 9.15. Okay, sorry about that. So we learn that Moses is, is standing in the gap and he in essence is saying, you can take them or you can take me. And that's the essence of what uh, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ is. But he, I don't know if I read earlier in there, what Moses did when he got down and he saw the people going crazy and wild, it says he threw the stones and he shattered them over top of the people. But now we get down to chapter 34 and verse 1. 
the Lord says to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Jesus stoops down and he writes a second time. He gives it a second chance. Not only to understand that the law that condemns us, the same law provides hope for us. What is this grace? This grace is the amazing way that we can humbly say, Lord, the stones have been broken because of the law that I have set aside. But I thank you that the second set of stones were written with grace all around them. God's offer of salvation is not because that you and I have earned some great position. It's not because we have become these great people with great obedience and great devotion. Those are important qualities and will give us so much joy and peace in life. But the basis of our salvation, the basis that sets this woman free, isn't simply that the people walked away. Because by law, Jesus was required to stone her or let himself get nailed to the cross. And that's what brings grace to its greater portions, is Jesus did not simply say, what you've done, don't worry about it. He's not saying to the woman, what you've done, it's okay, it's understandable. He's not saying to the woman, I'll sweep your sins under the carpet. He's not simply saying, well, we'll just forget about it. He takes the stone himself. The beauty of grace is that someone pays a huge price. The beauty is, just like Moses, blocked me out so your people can go free. And that's what Jesus came to do, is he came to communicate. And in John's gospel, it becomes so clear that everything Jesus did was for your benefit and mine. Everything Jesus taught is for your benefit and mine. Everything that Jesus ultimately ever does is for your benefit and mine. And that's this grace. So as we journey through the Gospel of John and we learn what this life truly is about, we always remember our real security isn't because we're climbing up some spiritual ladder, making greater levels of success. It's because grace, and it's always grace, that keeps us that secures us. Our security is because we are in Christ. We've involved, we've invited Jesus Christ to be at the center and foundation of our lives. And therefore, there's no longer any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's your relationship with him. And so as we come and we continue to grow in our understanding of God's grace, his love, his forgiveness and mercy, we recognize it's where we are today that is so important. Are we at a place where our hearts are receptive, we're tender, receiving this grace? Is that the foundation of our life? And is that the motivation to continue to live? I trust we will never become Pharisees. But I also trust that if those that yeast of that Phariseeism is beginning to do its work and we think we're doing pretty good, remember one thing, we are saved 
by grace through faith. It's not ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man boast. Father, we humbly come before you, not simply looking for an excuse to set our guard down or not simply looking for a means to bypass what true love and loyalty looks like. We do pray that your grace would give us a boost. Some of us, no doubt, might feel a little overwhelmed with things that have crept into our lives. Others of us, we might feel a little overly confident. We pray that the beauty of your grace would bring us all to the same plane so that we know that our security is in you and not in ourselves. Yet we trust that you will mature us, you will grow us, you will strengthen us so that we might bear fruit for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.